This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Did you know you could shop around for prescription prices? With GoodRx, you can find free coupons at over 70,000 pharmacies and save up to 80%. It's that easy. But don't just take my word for it. Dr. Adam says, I've been telling all my patients about GoodRx. Jacqueline says, my medication was $65 without insurance, but I paid $25. Aubriana says, you don't have to pay full price to live your best life. Couldn't have said it better myself. GoodRx is 100% free. Download the GoodRx app today and start saving. GoodRx is not insurance. Before we kick things off, though, just a quick note. There's a cause that is dear to some of the staff at Raptors Republic, and it is maybeifitwasme.com. You can visit that website. You can pick up a shirt that says no justice, no peace, and all the proceeds from that will go to the Black Legal Action Center. That is maybeifitwasme.com. And if you'd like to follow the Black Legal Action Center on Instagram, just type in Black Legal Action Center. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy the podcast. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to you. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast, or maybe Extra Weekly Podcast, I guess, since I just did one with Blake, but today recording with my my friend, my buddy, my guy, Lewis Satzman, who is both a wonderful writer for Raptors Republic, but also a, a cog and a half of the critically acclaimed Black Box Report, of which I occupy the other half. Lewis, you've come to talk to me today about basketball, I presume. How are you doing, man? I'm fantastic. Thank you, as always, for uh, for having me for the too kind intro. Yeah, doing well, man. I'm uh, my wife is about to head up to see her parents for a few days, about to have the house to myself, which just means gonna watch a ton of basketball film. So you know how it is. What is the one thing that you feel her being there impedes you from doing? What what? And it doesn't have to be severe. Actually, it's probably better if it isn't. <laughs> I should say, but. What is the one thing that you're like, okay, I have the house to myself. I am now free to do X. What it's is usually it? working without breaks. She keeps me healthy. If I'll work for like five or six hours straight without, you know, coming down for any food or coming to say hi, she'll come up and bug me and, you know, make me take a, a break to, to watch a show or go for a walk or do something. And so when she's gone, I'll often eat breakfast at like three in the afternoon and just wake up and, and work until then <laughs> without realizing. Yeah. What's your posture like at the end of a really long shift of working? Are you good at maintaining your posture or do you oh, kind of like horrible. shrink? Yeah. Oh, man. I, I'm usually – it's like – I don't know how well you know your you know Jewish tradition, but uh, on Passover, you're supposed to lean to the left. I'm like every, – every day is Passover for me. I'm slouching. I'm leaning over to the left. My feet are all akimbo. I'm just – I'm like a, a twisted, wizened like apple core. <laughs> oh wow! What a great term to use—a twi- a twisted, wizened apple core. 
Louis Zatzman. If you think that won't be the intro for the next podcast, you're insane, Jack. That's exactly what it's going to be. But the first question I have for you, and one that I have a suspicion you might enjoy, it's not so. It is related to basketball in some sense, but to life in others. What are the pitfalls of being obsessed with potential, and what is potential anyway? I do love that question. That's a wonderful question. Um, so this is something I've actually seen uh, Eric Kareen talk a little bit about, uh, just sort of what potential is. It's just specifically for basketball. Let's start before broadening it out there. Because it's something that, I mean, you, when you talk about a guy who has fulfilled his potential, you're just talking about someone who becomes the best version of him or herself you know, on the basketball court. Uh, and so usually potential when people are talking about it is athleticism. And if someone is very athletic, you know, if they couldn't be a superstar, right? If they become a great defender, become a great shooter, then they have all they need. So oftentimes people will use it as a pseudonym for something much simpler. Um, sometimes they'll use it as sort of a, a criticism like Kyle Lowry, you know, superstar that he is, has maxed out his potential, because he seems unathletic, he doesn't look like most superstars, and so he has maxed out the best player that he could possibly be. So oftentimes it's just in regards to talking about something else. So when you ask what is potential, it's a it's an ethereal question. It's tr- like trying to nail Jello. What what do you think it is? Potential to me, I think in basketball, I think you described it perfectly. Often is a pseudonym for other things and is kind of this glazing over the fact term that's used all the time. In life, I think potential, because we aren't measured in life the way we are measured in basketball, and certainly it's more complicated to measure tangible steps you've taken in life, I think potential, and to um, it represents maybe the better angels of our nature, because potential of somebody, well, that and maybe the the worst devils of our nature as well, if that's even a term uh, to be juxtaposed. But I think that it both represents what drives humanity forward and also represents some of what holds humanity back. Because for a long time in human history, I think the the idea of potential was what allowed for progress, perhaps. But now, since... I had this conversation the other day with my brother about enlightenment and uh, whether or not we're enlightened now and whether or not you earn enlightenment or if the conventional wisdom of the day has gotten to a point where you're born enlightened, I think is an interesting conversation. But we're at a point now where maybe potential is held up as kind of this wet blanket over top of us instead of pushing us forward. Like the idea of prison and being a criminal and all that kind of stuff, potential being the thing that is your saving grace, let's say, instead of your humanity being your saving grace. We first want to – yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, first of all, love that. Uh, the idea of potential being, you know, having changed our relationship to it, that's really interesting. Anyway, please continue. Yeah, and so what I mean is that way back when the idea of a, a prisoner who is now reformed, let's say, stepping out, fulfilling his potential, I think you would hear that term used a lot in a courtroom, to yeah. whereas now I think we're starting to have this different idea of what a prisoner is, 
maybe a prisoner is more so a victim of a system in which we might not even want prisons going forward, something like that. And so the idea of fulfilling potential in this new world where maybe there's a reform in what we're expecting of humans, because what we're expected to do on a day-to-day basis is fundamentally changed. So what is potential? What are we asking of each other? And are asking things of each other at this point, what does that even look like? And so I think all of that feeds into what potential is, because potential isn't anything except for expectations. And that looks different to different people. So it's it's very an ethereal question, as you said. I But I knew that would tickle your fancy, so I just wanted to pose it to you. Well, that's – I mean – what you were talking about there, and I'll tie this back to basketball at the end. I'm excited for the tie-in part. Is the idea of the like individuals driving their own success or failure versus context dr- driving people's you know results? And so your idea of of the prisoner and potential um, versus just life uh, t- ties in really well to sort of a lot of how we understand how history works. Um, 50, 60 years ago, we would have said, you know, people create their own paths, great man history, you know, leaders like Winston Churchill defined whatever happened, whereas history more recently has become much more about the context in which people live. And to tie that into basketball, uh, I think a lot of understanding about basketball has changed in the same way. You know, stars like uh, DeMar DeRozan, for example – uh, thrive in a specific context, and even if you go down below the, um, you know, below the level of stars to to fringe guys, G League guys like Lorenzo Brown, for example, I mean his potential in the NBA, he sort of maxed out the type of player he was, and I think given a certain team, he would have stuck in the NBA much better than given Toronto. So it wasn't so much as him fulfilling his potential as him fulfilling that context. Right. And I suppose that's the whole point is the context is what it is. And it just seems like us projecting our expectations onto other people because potential maybe shouldn't exist as anything other than something someone sees in their selves. So potential shouldn't be something you cast upon someone or expect upon somebody, but only something that you consider within yourself. My potential to me is X, but your potential, Lewis, to me maybe shouldn't even be something I consider. So if I'm saying I want to be X as a writer when I grow to be whatever I am in the future, I should have that expectation for myself. But I shouldn't consider that when I think about you because that would be putting my expectations of your potential on you, even though it is probably fundamentally different. And we do that to basketball players all the time, which I think is probably what Eric Kareen sees wrong with the equation. Maybe I'm stepping out. I'm not sure. No, that's something I think helps a team like the Raptors is a lot of their analysis for something like the draft seems to be based on how good guys actually are, not expectations of development, what they could become, but are they a really talented basketball player right now? Um, so actual actuality rather than potential. Yeah, well, I, that feels like a good place to jump off of it. Thank you for indulging me on that. And <laughs> I want to talk about something I know you're itching to write about and the Raptors have one of the best clutch time offenses in the league, which has been cited as a reason to expect a significant jump in half-court production once the team is back on the floor 
a half-court offense you wrote about last week. And whether that is correct or not, whether the clutch time statistics will start trending towards the overall half-court statistics, we'll see. But more recently, you've been watching the Raptors' clutch time minutes. What are your first impressions? What stands out from that? Okay, so you got me on a good day because today is my research day. I have I just finished before we before we got on the phone. So what I was looking for is specific examples of Kyle Lowry, Pascal Siakam, uh, pick and roll game, uh, whichever is screening, whichever is handling switches, obviously. So um, the general premise, people talk about it a lot, is Toronto hid this weapon throughout the season. They used it very rarely, and when they did use it, it was very successful. And that is a room for growth in the playoffs. So I wanted to ask whether that was true. How often did they use it? How successful was it? Who often did what role? Um, what type of results did they get? And is there room for more improvement in the playoffs? So I want to, I have some numbers that I made myself before the call. I want to ask you first, how many possessions, and this is just in clutch time, which I defined as um, within 10 points, either team for the last five minutes, and only in games in which Kyle and Pascal both played. How many possessions of Kyle Pascal pick and roll do you think they ran? 26. You're about half, 45. Okay. So a little more than I would have expected. And uh, so 45 possessions. How many points do you think those 45 possessions resulted in? Oh, man. Uh, I'm going to guess like, 1.20 points per possession. So Roughly crazy around high. that. You're close. I, yeah. It was even higher. It was 1.56. So 70 points in 45. <laughs> oh man. And uh, so what do you think is driving that? Do you is it just because of their skill sets? And is that something? Do you see what triggers that? Is there something Kyle Lowry's doing, or is that something that just at the end of the game? Do you think they're linking up and saying we need to score? We'll go to this. So it depends on the game, I guess, uh, and on the part of the season. So in the beginning of the season, and I'm just going to spoil my whole piece here, not saving anything. In the beginning <laughs> of the season, the Raptors used it a ton. Um, the first game against New Orleans, they used it twice in clutch. Second game, Boston used it twice. And then the third game against Orlando, they used it the most all season. They used it five consecutive possessions and scored uh 10 points in those five consecutive possessions. So really, really successful. Um, after that, they sort of put it under wraps for a while. So it was almost like, okay, you know, we have this thing. We know we can use a ton. Uh, it'll work whenever we want it to, basically. And then over the next several months, um, some of it was an injury to Kyle. Some of it was an injury to Pascal. Um, and they didn't use it until... Uh, Serge and Mark both got injured at the same time. And then they had OG play center, but he's not nearly as good a screener as Pascal, so they almost use it by necessity. This is what they had to do. So uh, four consecutive games, uh, or five sort of games, they used it. Phoenix, four consecutive times to win the game, scored on all four. Then didn't use it against Milwaukee. Charlotte, they used it five consecutive times to end the game. Didn't use it against Denver, and then Phoenix again, four of the last possessions, scored on everyone again against Phoenix. So 
Some of it is the numbers are slanted based on the team they played. They used it more against teams where it worked, obviously. Sorry to interject. Do you know who yeah, the yeah. primary defenders were involved in the actions in the Orlando and Phoenix games? I should say the majority of yeah, the yeah, possessions. Yeah. Uh, so the Orlando game was actually Kyle ball handling every time. Um, right. And it was Jonathan Isaac on uh, on Siakam every time in that game. Wow. Nice. Um, but a lot of those successes were pull-up threes. And so th- the thing, I mean, that was like a long rant for me, and I didn't answer your question at all. You asked what makes it work. Uh, well, when Kyle's ball handling, a lot of it is just people are afraid of Pascal. Even though he's not like a, a brilliant screener yet, but he just causes fear wherever he goes and usually gives Kyle plenty of space for pull-up threes. So a lot of it is pull-up threes. Uh, some of it is just driving, baiting into free throws. Um, when Pascal handled, it actually wasn't good at all throughout the whole season. A lot of you know switching, no advantages, a lot of sort of chaos that results in broken plays. And then the end of the season... Um, actually, the last five times the Raptors ran it, Pascal handled every time, and they each resu- resulted in a basket uh, against Golden State and then four against Sacramento. Seems like he really cleaned up what he was doing. So the cleaning up, did you notice any parts of that cleaning up? Is it just attacking switches differently or being able to hit the screen? at a, like Obviously, how you run off a screen is super important. Did you notice anything he was doing in the micro sense? Absolutely. Uh, And it wasn't so much him as the team around him because um, Pascal actually likes to play kind of slow in the pick and roll game. He prefers to short roll when he's rolling and when he's handling, he likes to pause and survey. And so one thing that changed was Kyle actually held his screen longer, uh, giving Pascal more time. Kyle flipped a lot of those screens that worked actually. So just giving him as much time as possible to survey. And then he made his move late with the team not really cutting or diving until he makes that move. And so a lot of it was switching and he he drives against the switch or a double team and he, he uh, reaches the corner soonest. So the last one of the season was actually, you may remember, the game winner against Sacramento where Pascal um, got a switch, got downhill and sort of um, got a guy in his hip and finished with a crazy left-handed layup to win the game. It's crazy how often that's working. We've talked about it almost every single podcast we've done this year was when are are they going to use Pascal in the pick and roll more often as a screener or ball handling. So it's cool to see that they're having so much success. Were there any other outliers? Uh, One thing that I thought was really interesting, and I'm not – I think it's a little too much – too labor-intensive for me to do the numbers on all of these other elements, but a lot of the time that Pascal did um, have success handling – actually wasn't with Kyle because um, what they did against some teams that are better, uh, Milwaukee, San Antonio, good examples, um, they had Pascal handling, but they chose whichever guard had the weakest defender uh, to force the switch and have Siakam exploit them. So usually Kyle would have team's best guard defenders. And so as a result, Siakam had his best numbers um, with someone like Fred or Norm screening for him which wasn't so much how the action worked as just who teams put as a defender on the guards. Right, that makes sense. Wow, that's super interesting. I didn't, like, obviously we've seen them do a bit of matchup hunting with Pascal, but I didn't expect it to be to that degree at the end of games. That's cool that they were seeking that out, because obviously that's something that a lot of the best players do, is you 
especially with Pascal, as you alluded to, being he really likes to survey. He short rolls because he likes having things in front of him. He, he's slow up top because he likes having the play develop in front of him. And it makes sense that that would appeal to a player who can now kind of go into matchups and, and hunt those things. So that's something we see out of LeBron James a lot, too, is stand at the top, pick the player rather than the screener. I yeah. think that's an interesting wrinkle that a lot of players um, don't often do. So I'm um, the wow. 